spend so much time typing at a terminal, and yet the underlying mechanisms and history behind it are often overlooked. The TTY is an integral part of Unix, and we take most of its behavior for granted, even though it has a huge history baggage and that it carries to this day. For instance, pressing Ctrl-C or Ctrl-Z to stop or put in the background a process, or using Ctrl-A to go to the beginning of the line. You might think that the Ctrl-A may come from the Emacs keybind, but it doesn't. It's the opposite. The Emacs keybinds are inspired by the TTY. So, in this episode, we're going to dive in the world of terminals. A big, rough and unhoned overview of this part of Unix. I'm Vinam, and you're listening to The Nixers Podcast. So, really, what's a terminal? This is a rather evolving or evolved definition. Originally, it was a hardware device with a single purpose. Now, it more or less isn't. Because of the changing definition, many will disagree about it, even fight over the semantics and epistemology, which is useless. And the name itself is about teleprinters, teletypewriters, teletypewriters, the TTY comes from there. So start quote. Originally, they meant a piece of equipment through which you could interact with the computer. In the early days of Unix, that meant a teleprinter-style device resembling a typewriter, sometimes also called a teletypewriter or TTY in shorthand. The name terminal came from the electronic point of view, then end of serial connections. And the name console from the furniture point of view. Very early in Unix history, electronic keyboard and displays became the norm for terminals. End quote. Generically, it's an input-output device which function is to display and input data, but that's overly generic. Thus, many things are regarded as terminals. They come in many forms. It could be a, start quote, serial devices connected by a serial port such as printers, teleprinters, teletypewriters, or modem supporting remote terminal via dial-up access and directly connected local terminals. End quote. Or it could be a start quote, display adapter and keyboard hardware directly incorporated into the system unit taken together to form a local console which may be presented to users and to programs as a single CRT terminal or as multiple virtual terminals. End quote. Or again, it could be a start quote, software terminal emulators such as Xterm, console, GNOME terminal. URXVT, or any terminal programs and network servers such as rlogin daemon and the SSH daemon, which make use of pseudo-terminals, end quote. So for the moment, we haven't even talked about graphics and text, but a lot of the time, when we think about terminals, we picture character cell terminals or text terminals with, with maybe a keyboard attached to it. Those are devices connected to a host by a serial cable which transfer the textual information in ASCII or EBCDIC form. The text on those terminals is displays character by character from a pre-selected array of character that the terminal has for each. But again, that doesn't mean it's only normal text that appears on the terminal. It can be represented in any way. A good example of that is the Bry terminal that displays Bry representation of ASCII's. So this kind of device can have a typewriter or a video display. In the case of the video display, we would call it a video display unit, VDU, or a glass TTY. But there are also graphical terminals too that use vector mode or raster mode and can display images. The cable used to hook up the text terminal to the host machine is usually an RS-232C cable that talks the RS-232, the de facto protocol of text terminal, which is plainly said just a one start bit, eight data bit, where the first seven are used for ASCII and the last one is unspecified and no parity and one stop bit. So a very simple protocol. For graphic terminals, the protocol could be Tektronix for vector graphics or REGIS or anything else as there are many and graphic terminals weren't used that much. 
This all makes it seem like a terminal is just, a, is just a thin client. The device where you swipe, scan your credit card at a, at a restaurant is called a terminal too. The word terminal in its traditional meaning, meaning is a device through which you interact with the computer. And the Unix word, this all get mixed up. A TTY is a special file, a character device with additional comments beyond read and write. Terminal may be synonymous with TTY because the teletype were the first to be terminal ends to the computer, as we'll see. A lot of the vocabulary is used interchangeably. We now have a vague idea of what a terminal is, an input-output bidirectional device that doesn't process anything. A thin client, in quote. However, that's not even close to what a terminal is. There is a distinction between what some consider dumb terminals and intelligent terminals. In fact, there are many different definitions that may contradict each other's. Some say that dumb terminals, in quote, are the ones that do no big processing and only interpret a, li a limited number of end quote control codes such as carry age return and line feed but don't have the ability to process special sequence of escape code like clearing the screen the intelligent end quote terminals in that case are the ones that process the special escape sequences so remember here the keyword control codes because we'll come back to those later on this also means that everything that travels the I.O. stream for dumb terminal is that simple and unstructured while that for intelligent terminals there could be format specification. For instance, TCP IP is a good example of such protocol. But then again, the RS-232 or similar protocol would only fit the dumb terminal definition. Another definition says that dumb terminals don't do their own processing, while intelligent terminals have microprocessor built in them to process input before sending them. Others say that smart terminals are fat clients, that they don't depend on the host unlike thin clients. They do all the processing themselves, while dumb terminals are thin clients. In that case, Chromebooks and Citrix are considered dumb terminals, question mark here, but they aren't really. This was just an extreme example to show the absurdity. Dumb terminals are thin clients, but thin clients are not always dumb terminals. Others say that the term dumb and intelligent terminals are marketing terms to sell personal computers and that in fact all terminals are dumb from the straight go that it goes with the definition of what the terminal is. And, quite frankly, I like that last approach. Those are all fine definitions, but they're not really precise. They're just examples of what could represent the concept of a terminal. The essence of a terminals is more in their history than anything else. And it's a changing history. Let's start with the part that might be surprising, but when you think about it is not so surprising, which is that the teletype evolved independently from the computer in what you could call its infancy. The teletype derives from a device that was invented in 1869, the ticker tape, or stock ticker, which was an electromechanical machine, basically a typewriter connected through wires to the telegraph network that printed on ticker tape printer. Its purpose was to distribute stock prices over long distances in real time, over telegraph lines. And this evolved over time into ASCII-based teletype, which were connected in a large network called the Telex, used to transfer, to transfer commercial telegrams. All of this without ever being connected to a computer. On the other side, computers were gigantic monsters that executed programs through batch processing. That is, you entered the program through a punch card, for example, and then you couldn't do any manual interventions until it was finished. That's it, end of the line. Soon enough, real-time interactions was possible and telet teletypes were used as input and output devices because they were already everywhere on the market. Those printing terminals were truly limited by the speed at which paper could be printed, and for interactive use, the paper record was necessary so that you could see what you were typing at the same time. The brand new shiny video computer display were introduced at this point. Also nicknamed glass TTYs or 
Visual Display Unit, VDU, which had a significant advantage and improvement over typewriters. There were a lot of vendors, but the two most popular and well-known of those were the DEC, Digital Equipment Corporation VT100, and the IBM 3270. But the IBM 3270 was popular because it was used with the IBM mainframe, which is not Unix. And the VT100 was more iconic to this day, let's say. But why is the VT100 iconic more than all others, more than all the other vendors? The Digital Equipment Corporation, which, which was founded in 1957, is one of the classic companies that made computers a bit more practical, starting with their PDP-1 that included a CRT and its operator console, then continued with today's well-known VT series of Glass TTY. At the time, there were so many video terminals that the market was labeled the Tower of Babel. Each manufacturer had their own proprietary set of terminal functions, code, escape sequences, control characters, etc. Each of them had different characteristics used to control the physical appearance on the screen, some of the controls used when connected online or offline, as in to a computer or not. Because remember that teletype were there before being connected to computers, so you could control the appearance without the help of a computer. It was a convention used when teletypewriters were connected to printers, which was essentially because both ends needed to know what characteristic the connection had. Both ends need to communicate the exact same way. The default setting didn't cut it off. More on that later. Again, you have to remember that we'll talk about control characters. As I said, I'll come back to it later. So programmers grew frustrated. There needed to be regrouping and identifying of terminal types and related control codes to use and escape codes. And so a compatibility layer was needed for the panoply of different teletype models. Eventually it led to the development of the NC standard for device control, the X364 standard in 1977. The VT100 from DEC with its 8-bit Intel 8080 chip to interpret control codes or escape sequence was one of the first but not the first to implement it. However, it got really popular. From this point on, all terminals had backward compatibility with the VT100 and more precisely the X364 standard. So programmers favored the standard over added product features. The output appearance escape sequences were now standardized. A last note on this topic, green monochrome screens from IBM PC, for example, were not text terminals, per se, to be pedantic. Those screens didn't contain any character generation. The image screen displayed is processed by the CPU and sent directly to the device to be displayed. More on that in a previous episode about green on black. It's good to know that there were terminal emulators for a long time, before even TCP IP. That's what was used to remotely communicate with terminals of different types. It was the emulation layer. Modern personal computers have a built-in keyboard and screen, and so there is not much need to own a physical terminal em anymore. Instead, we have terminal emulators and virtual consoles providing multiple text terminals on a single machine, which are provided by most of today's operating system, especially on Unix-like systems. Terminal emulators are pieces of softwares which emulate and behave like real text terminals to some degree, some with better emulation than others. We'll dive into the architecture later on. Those emulation softwares are compatible with all the most common terminal escape sequences and control characters. They use the NC standard that we talked about earlier, the X364. It's pretty advantageous and useful to be able to support anything on a single machine. We'll talk about how this comes into place and why is everything supported using term cap and term info. Even though some argue that this emulation sometimes has many drawbacks, such as the constructed architecture to make it work on physical things, such as the keyboard layout not being the same and the legacy aspect it has. Most of today's terminal emulators emulate the VT100 or at least are compatible with it. For example, Xterm emulate the VT220, URXVT the VT120, 
102, the term termite terminal uses the VTE library, which is also used in the GNOME terminal, a sort of easy wrapper that emulates the VT220. And how close a terminal or terminal emulator program comes to precisely emulate a real VT100 can be measured by using a program called VTTest, which is a nice nifty tool. I kept on repeating that we'll explain what those control codes and escape sequences are about, so let's do that now. The terminal protocol only lets 8 bits, which 7 are ASCII, go over the wire, and so there was a need for a way to send special comments to the terminal through ASCII, a way to control the terminal or the computer that the terminal is connected to. The rather simplistic way implemented was to add a key that if held down that key being the control key, and pressing another key, it would clear up grounds zero the voltage of the 7th and 6th bit, so that the 8-bit ASCII character code is modified. When you remove the 6th and 7th bit, you don't get actual printing characters, but you get special ones that have a special meaning. That's simple enough, right? This is very apparent when you look at the physical typewriter, such as the Teletype Model 33 ASR which was originally used for telegraphy. So I've linked an image there in the show notes, and it was clearly written on the keys what those control codes would do. So in the image I've, I've linked, control G is the bell, control I is tab. And one interesting consequence is that adding shift to the control code doesn't give a new bit sequence. That is because holding shift has the effect of setting through the sixth bit which is then nullified by holding control. As a result, multiple key combinations can be equivalent. For example, control i is con equivalent to control shift i, which is equivalent to tab. Those could be advantages when the usual key, for instance, escape is not placed in an ergonomic manner, you can use the equivalent key combination instead. In the early days, the control character implementation was hardware-based. The changing of the ASCII code or the 8-bit was done before being sent to the machine. But these days, every key are distinguishable and the interpretation is left to the software. Before continuing with the other kinds of special sequences, let's discuss some methods, docs, and investigation tools that can be used to verify what happens when certain keys are pressed and interpreted by the terminal. The first most important one is the main page section 7 for ASCII. It contains a table of ASCII characters where it's easy to see how control characters are triggered when they're their, their, their position adjacently to their 6th and 7th bits nullified version. For example, the start of heading control character is next to the A character. So pressing control A is equivalent to entering the start of heading. Another thing you can do with that table is check out the list of control characters. Now, a great way to actually analyze what is happening when entering characters on a terminal is to get inside a mode where only the terminal interprets then via its reading library, via its read line function or anything that is low level mechanism. You can run for example cat-v or t or script and enter the key combination you want. So it, it will greet you back with the visual representation of those and a non-printable characters. So we call those caret notation. For example it shows caret and bracket for the escape character. This is an easy way to make sure everything you thought was happening is truly happening. There are two control characters that are present for the control of transmission over the RS-232 protocol. They are usually called flow control characters, as they have the ability to tell the terminal to stop the transmission and to res resume it. The X-off and X-on control which are otherwise referred to in the ASCII table as device control 1 and 3, respectively. This is a useful feature if the computer at the end of the terminal is sending characters too fast and the terminal is not able to keep up with the printing. As we said, and we'll come back to later, every terminal has their own settings and features and the terminal and the computer had to agree 
on what base settings they ha they are gonna communicate with. One of those settings is the baud rate, the rate of character transfer, the output speed of the terminal and bits per second. You can imagine that the flow control is useful if a terminal is misconfigured and its baud rate is lower than what the computer presumes. We'll come back to the settings later on. What's up with the other special keys on the keyboard? You may ask. Generically, those keys are called modifiers, as they change the behavior of other keys when you hold them. We already saw one subset of those modifiers when discussing control. Another, uh, another subset is about bucky bits. A bucky bit is a bit that gets set when you press a modifier at the same time. You might already know one, for instance we talked about the shift key which set the 6th bit, but that's the exception to the bucky key criteria because shift isn't considered a bucky bit changer. One of those bucky bit setters originated from the MIT Lisp machine keyboard, the Space Cadet keyboard and the Sun Microsystem keyboard which had a meta key and a diamond key which would set the 8th bit to true. The 8th bit which value was left unspecified because the ASCII set fit in the 7th bits and not 8. And so by only checking the 8th bit you can know if the meta special slash super, super is pressed or not. The meta key is used a lot these days for multiple purposes but that's all left to the software interpretation and not to the terminal. There are now many new bucky bit setters these days but that's not a subject for this podcast. Another modifier is the alt key the weird kiddo in the family. Its original purpose was more or less one of the bucky bit setter, but it then morphed with time. Alt historically comes from the IBM PC where you held the Alt key and then typed decimal number on the key keypad to insert characters by their key code instead of typing them. It was used to to, to to insert characters that didn't appear on the keyboard such as UTF-8 ca characters for other languages. And the way it worked was by using the BIOS buffer that would wait for input when ALT was pressed and then map it as if it was a single keystroke. This is a feature we today refer to as Compose Key or ALT Codes Key. ALT was repurposed to serve as a meta key when unices were ported to the PC. But the technique of setting the 8th bit to 1 was not so compatible with the advent of networking, which would, which would mess up the bits, because it's not part of the ASCII itself. Meta-aware application checking the 8th bit was not viable anymore, it would cause troubles. Instead, they found a new way to do meta-like behavior. They would first send an escape before sending the character that was pressed, and then the character. This more or less worked because applications were already handling escape codes, a series of characters to manipulate at the software level the appearance of text on the screen, and so they were already waiting to process the rest of the stream, those escape sequences we talked about earlier. Now, meta would mean if you see escape, whatever follows should be considered as if it was entered with meta held down. This creates the issue that you can't have separate key interpretation and your terminal software for escape and alt plus character since they are the same thing. Escape sends directly an escape characters while alt waits for a second character to follow. For instance when in vim while in insert mode if you press escape or alt plus anything it will go back to normal mode. Or just open a terminal and type some commands for instance ls-lah and then try alt b to go a word backward and then alt f to go a word forward. Now replace alt with escape but press each key separately. Now you can see that it accomplishes the same thing. You two have to add to the equations that whatever we've talked about earlier about equivalence when you hold the control key and you get the idea of the mess. Moreover, on slow and low co quality connection, this can cause issue if the handling of the alt key is left to the application at the other end. This is usually corrected by increasing the time it waits for a key following the alt. And one last thing to mention are the internal to the terminal debugging or functionalities features key. There are a bunch of keys, the function keys that act on the terminal itself and are not transferred. 
According to your definition, and depending on the features of those function keys, you could possibly call those terminal intelligent terminals. Those keys were originally used to debug and have an idea of what was sent over the wire. On other terminals where you could connect to multiple computers, they are used to switch between sessions. But I have something to admit, whatever I say about the purpose of keys and their interpretation is a bit of a lie, more or less. Those all depends on the terminal settings and their interpretation by that terminal. It's not encored, so take it lightly. This is, this is what we're going to discuss next, the settings, how you set how those keys are interpreted at each level. As I've said, those special characters varies from one terminal to the other, but they also vary in their interpretation at the host level. This layer of configuration and agreement between the host and terminal of what settings are set for what terminal is what we're going to discuss now. Later, later on we'll deal with the architecture of terminal emulation interface and how things fall into place. The actual interpretation of control codes reside in the POSIX term iOS interface. Quote, the term iOS functions describe a general terminal interface that is provided to control asynchronous communication ports. End quote. Historically, physical terminals were connected to a UART, a universal asynchronous receiver and transmitter, which is a hardware component that controls serial communications sending bytes asynchronously from one end to the other with adjustable speed rate. Start quote. The UART is a computer hardware device for asynchronous serial communication in which the data, format and transmission speed are configurable. End quote. So the terminal and host are connected to the UART and the OS manages this via the UART driver to control the speed of the transmission, the parity and the control flow. In direct relation with that, Unix systems used to manipulate and interpret the input and output streams with the IO control system call and before that even with the STTY and GetTTY system calls. IO control reads stream from the terminal device file, as with Unix everything is a file. This is called line editing or line discipline, which is a buffer that the operating system provides for interpreting, editing, erasing, clearing lines, reprinting, echoing, etc. Basically, a line discipline aka LDISC or LDIS is an input-output policy for interpretation of characters that goes with the terminal requirements. It sits one layer above the serial driver and shapes its behavior. It's the glue between the kernel space and user space. There's a line discipline for every terminal attached to the machine, according to the terminal and host settings. On Linux, you can check the current line discipline for the TTY and use at the special slash proc TTY LDISC file. Along with that comes the session management that knows what to do with processes according to the control character receives. For instance, putting a process in the background or foreground, which we'll discuss, which we'll discuss later on in the architecture. Together, the UR driver, the line discipline instance, and the TTY driver can be referred to as a TTY, more or less. Simply explained for now, there is a controlling terminal, a terminal your shell is connected to, a terminal with specific settings, and there is a line discipline, or some layer that interprets and understands control characters you enter via the terminal. But it was not all that great in the days. For instance, there was a time when some keys were set in the drivers, for instance, to represent erase and kill, where you were forced to use the pound or at, and you couldn't change it or then later on you could only change it as part of the login process. There were many different interfaces for different Unixes which led to the need for standardization which POSIX took on. They made every Unix use a single specification for the line discipline and integrated the BSD job control, which we'll discuss later on a bit, and they dumped the raw IO control, which was different from platform to platform, for the more generic ab abstract term iOS that can be ported to any architecture. The names and parameters to configure the terminals got standardized through a data structure that contains all the, option, all the options. 
Now, processes can read and modify the configurations of the OpenTTY devices via a cleaner and stable interface. And if you're writing a program that interprets those control characters or disables them or interact with terminal streams, you can use that as the base instead of the raw I.O. control. That data structure in the term iOS is a simple C data structure and it represents a terminal interface. And there are also many functions that let you interact with that structures, namely TC get attribute and TC set attribute. The data structure contains the UART parameters, the line discipline stuff and the control stuff all in one place. It has a flag for many configs that you can enable or disable and there's a good list of them in the term iOS main page, so check that out. For instance, you can set the baud rate, the speed of the UART or the parity with the CC flag field and the structure or you can change the input or output mode with the CI flag field and the CO flag or even what the control characters mean via the CCC field or how signals are fired via the CL flag. The output processing flag affects how certain characters are displayed on the screen, for instance new line or tab characters. The input processing directly affects how the read system call works on a terminal device and how the line discipline and signal generation will work. And there are multiple modes available for that. There's the character mode aka character at a time or row mode which lets everything you type to be sent immediately to the receiving system without even doing any line editing or interpretation of control sequences. Everything is treated as normal character input and the application receives entire character streams unaltered. There's also the line mode aka cooked mode aka line at a time mode which provides a local line editing buffer functions and sends entire input when pressing return line at a time after passing through the line discipline. A so-called line mode terminal operates sol solely on in this mode. There's the C-break mode which is another subset of the character at a time mode, jokingly referred to as half-cooked mode or rare mode, which like the row mode sends directly all characters to the application without line discipline performed. However, it handles interrupt and quit control characters, as well as modem flow control or signal generation characters. And there's a last mode, which is the block mode, aka screen at a time mode, which sends the whole screen to and from the terminal. The user fills many forms and then sends the data to the server, sort of like a web REST API. The popular terminal IBM 3270 for the IBM mainframe we talked about earlier is block oriented. When you think of it, block modes are one of those instances of intelligent terminal and one of the earlier definitions we gave. POSIX doesn't have anything for that kind of terminals. It wasn't built for block terminals. One last note. Some refer to the line mode as canonical and the row mode as non-canonical. The programmatic interface to control terminals might be too tedious, so a much more convenient way to configure the terminal is to use the STTY command directly from the shell. It is a thin wrapper around the functions of the term iOS API to set and get values. The STTY command acts on a terminal device and by default if you don't pass the parameter it acts on the one you're currently connected to. To get the terminal you're currently sitting at, if you don't know how to do that, you can use the TTY command, but this command is not portable. When you call STTY without argument, it prints out the differences between the current settings and what it considers sane defaults. When you pass the dash A or everything on BSD, it prints the value for all the flags and the term iOS structure in a human readable format. You can also set or unset flags and options as you wishes, adding a, a dash before it for switching off and nothing for setting it. Overall, it's an easier way to interact with term iOS. For example, you can play around with the control characters by changing what the interrupt character is instead of the usual default of control C, or change the erase character from backspace to something else, or change the word erase character from control W to something else, or you can disable control flow, or change the bolt rate, or change between canonical or non-canonical mode, 
enable echoing back to the screen, changing the number of rows and lines of the terminal, etc. etc. There's a lot of interesting things you can do and it's a portable way to do it. You can add those to your shell so that your preferred settings are, are there at login. Uh, the issue then becomes if your terminal emulator intercepts and does something with it before sending it to the line discipline, which then nullifies its effect. Though I, I think it's better to get used to the default sane settings that is provided, like Control u for line erase, so that you'll be more at ease with, your, with any terminals. Applications are written to run on many, if not all, terminals. It doesn't want to care if it's a physical VT100 or if it's putty on a Windows machine. The software gets told which terminal it is currently working on and assumes and expects certain capabilities and responses to that. Usually that name is stored in an environment variable called term. This variable can be automatically set or manually set. The tset or reset or getTTY programs initialize that value by querying the terminal trying to find a sensible state. It's usually called inside a dot .profile or anything that's there before, like login. That implies that before login the system cannot have any idea what kind of terminal you're running. It's a misconception that misconfigured term info, term cap, getTTY tab, or whatever we're gonna talk in a bit or the term environment variable affects the ability to log into a terminal. Sometimes the expectations of the program are wrong. An example would be to think the terminal has 20 columns instead of 10, and that can mess up the output, but that usually happens if it's a badly written program. Most softwares assume that it's the most common default terminal settings. The standard one we discussed in an earlier section, the VT100, just so that the software and terminal can agree on something. But how do you know which settings goes with which terminal? How do you map the terminal settings related to the terminal and that term environment variable? That's where term info and term cap appear. They are databases of terminal capabilities and features which mainly are comprised of escape codes that are supported by the terminal. Those are mostly for visual attributes. Those are the ones we talked about earlier, control codes, the NC sequences. But it doesn't take care of everything. For instance, there's the tabs program that is used to control the tab behavior on terminals and not necessarily term info or term cap. The term info is the newest version of the term cap one. Term cap can be converted to term info using the cap to info command, but that's just a detail. Term cap is a text file and etc term cap, while term info is a bunch of binary files and subdirectories under user lib term info for every different type of terminal. Libraries such as and curses are built on top of term info so that it can use the escape codes properly. It's better to retrieve them from the database than to have them hard-coded. And yes, there was a time where those have been hard-coded in softwares. There's a much simpler version of term cap for BSD that is called by getTTY during login and it's called getTTY tab. And yeah, that's what we're going to say about it. For example, you can check out for more info the info CMP command, which will output the escape characters for your current terminal, or the tput, which can be used to query the term info database. And for even more information, you can check the main page for term info and the one for term cap. Now let's deal with the architecture. How does everything fall into place, all the pieces? First of all, let's review a bit of what we've already seen so far. We have the physical terminal with their history, capabilities and keys that are connected via the RS-232 to the host. Or those could be virtual terminals, we'll discuss how those work in a bit. Then there's a mapping of the terminal as a file and device and slash dev so that it can be interacted with. For instance, you can check the main page for TTY 
S to find out how to manually create this file for serial terminals. After that, there's the actual login, then the tset or getTTY to get and set the term environment variable to the appropriate value and appropriate related term info. Start quote. The getTTY utility is called by init to open and initialize the TTY line, read a login name, and invoke login. The argument TTY of that command is a special device file and slash dev to open the terminal. End quote. After that starts the actual architectural cycle of input send interpret loop. We've seen so far of that is the actual physical input of the terminal, the transfer of the 8 bits for RS-232 or RS-422 or whatever interface you're using, the UART to control the rate of transfer board rate, and the line discipline that is attached to this current terminal with its settings. Now let's actually finish that cycle by discussing the architecture of virtual terminals, of virtual consoles, and of sessions and process control that we said we would come back to. Unix was designed with this sort of thin client or dumb text terminal, if you prefer, in mind. Much of the architectural thinking emerges from that. That's why it was helpful to review a bunch of things about terminals before explaining the architecture. On most Unix, there are many terminal drivers responsible for the underlying control of the I.O. instructions and interrupt requests for input and output that can be used in different situations. The console driver, for example, the virtual console, VC driver, the serial driver, the pseudo-terminal driver, etc. The line discipline itself is independent from the driver. We've already seen how the physical line for physical terminal worked, and this doesn't change much even if you add a long-distance phone line in the middle, be it a corporate terminal or console server or not, which is outside the scope of this podcast. So you have the terminal, modem, physical line, modem, UART, etc. Now, how does the Linux console work, or console for any other system? But let's take Linux as an example. It's not the physical terminal, it's directly attached to the same machine you're running Linux on. You got on one side the display with its VGA driver, on the other side you have the keyboard with its keyboard driver. Both are connected to the terminal emulator, one end for input, one end for output, the screen and the keyboard. This terminal emulator is connected to the line discipline as usual, plus the TTY driver for the capabilities and the rest, and that TTY driver handles the user process management. The only big difference here is that there's no UART. This is handled in the emulator, visual terminal instead. Let's also note that this doesn't employ term info. The console has its own set of escape codes and special sequences hard-coded. Or sometimes it has a simplified version of those info, for example the getTTYTab file, which is a simplified version of the termcap database accessed during the login process. When we move up to the user land, things get more abstracted. It uses a concept called a pseudo-terminal, or PTY, a virtual terminal, which now requires two different driver parts, under slash dev again, two different endpoints. One is called the PTY slave or PTS and another the PTY master or PTMX. Both ends are bidirectional communication channels but do different jobs. The process connect to the slave end. The slave behaves exactly like a classic terminal. The slave driver responds to what the line discipline sends it. On the other end, the master side is the one that acts as input and output. It sends the characters to the line discipline so that it can interact with the slave and receive back the output for interaction. It's the master that is connected to your terminal emulator and the slave that is connected to the program you are running. Whatever is written in one end can be read out from the other after passing through the line discipline. Technically under Linux, the PTMX is a character file with major number 5 and mi- minor number 2, and owned by the root user. When a process opens slash dev slash PTMX, it gets back from it a file descriptor to a slave. 
a PTS device under slash dev slash PTS directory, which will be owned by the user that requested it. Every time you request from the master, you get a different slave. This slave file is the reply to the TTY comment we talked about earlier, which is not very portable and only Linux dependent. Note that there's usually a limit to the number of open sudo terminals and Linux you can check it in proxys kernel pty max. Usually it's 256. And another file that is useful is proxys kernel pty nr, which lists the number of already open sudo terminals. Now, when you want to open a sudo terminal slave for process interaction, you must pass the master file descriptor to be able to unlock it so that it grants you access. There's a bunch of POSIX system calls that help you with that, such as POSIX open PT, get PT, grant PT, unlock PT, PTS name, etc. The BSD style of sudo terminal is a bit different. It provides them as pre-created pairs with names of the form slash dev PTY XY for the master and slash dev DTY XY for the slave. For example, slash dev PTY P1 and slash dev DTY P1 is a BSD sudo terminal pair. When a, a process wants a sudo terminal pair on BSD, it tries the open system call and and it opens each sudo terminal master until it succeeds. It's also nice to know that you can send data to the slave sudo tty from the command line and it will get processed and output to the master end. It's useful to send input to programs that don't usually accept input such as su or password and it can also be used for chatting. This whole sudo terminal thing is a bit of a hack to facilitate terminal emulation and user land and not break the TTY subsystem. Also here you can note that there is no UART obviously. Sudo terminals have kernel buffer to sync the rate of the data flowing instead which is more or less the same as the boat rate. When the process can't call write to a stream because the buffer is filled it puts the process in a sleep state and then alternates uh, between running and sleeping when it can. And as with physical terminals, you can stop the stream using flow control character X on and X off. And this all shows how the, US, the operating system process states are tied to the flow. On a terminal, you usually run processes and frequently it's through the shell, the command prompt. So let's take a step back and see how all of this fits into the process model. For example, when Ctrl-C is received, it won't be handed off to the application through read, but will instead cause a SIG interrupt that will be delivered to the foreground job. So why and how is that? In kernel land, things communicate via interrupts be them hardware interrupts or software interrupts. Signals are a sort of software interrupts, and this is what the kernel uses to communicate with processes. In our case, it's the line discipline that lives in the kernel land and that sends that to the processes. If you want more info about signals, you can go back and check the episode about uh, signals we had. One interesting thing to add to what we previously discussed is how the name and behavior of signals originated from the actual physical terminals. For instance, SIGHUP is a signal that in indicates that the UART driver hanged up, that the connection is cut. SIGINT sig interrupt, is a signal sent by the TGY driver to the foreground process that say that the control character for interrupt, control C usually, has been received. There's also a signal sent for, for when the terminal size changes, the SIGWINCH, and there are quite a bunch of them, so you can check their history. If you remember, we mentioned that POSIX implemented, along with the term iOS, the job control mechanism of BSD. It was a feature of the C shell before that. And this allowed flexible manipulation of processes. A shell gets a terminal session that means access to a slave terminal, for example. And then there's an array of processes under that session called the process group. The process within a group are called jobs. There's the notion of foreground process and the TTY driver, the process that receives the signal that is 
sent to that session and the process who may perform input and output to that terminal. There's also one foreground process for one session on a terminal. It's a way to control which process may perform input-output from the terminal at a given time. There are also signals sent because processes from that group that aren't the foreground process, so-called background processes, because there can only be one foreground process, are trying to access the controlling terminal. The grouping also allows you to deliver signals to them all at the same time. You can swap between which job within the group is the foreground or background one using those signals, putting the one in the foreground in running state or the other in the wait, waiting state. For example, when you log in, you get a session created by the set SID system called on the login terminal and all processes there are under the same group and inherit this terminal. And the foreground process is the session leader of that process group. It's the session leader that tells the terminal which job is the foreground job. When a controlling terminal process terminates, the session ends and it allows it to be acquired by a new session leader. So process management is outside of the scope of this episode, so we'll keep it to what we're interested in. Overall, it's all about juggling with signals and swapping between foreground and background jobs. One thing we forgot to add to the equation is the layer the shell has before interacting with the terminal architecture. This adds more complexity as the shell can capture and interpret characters which could be other control characters or anything else. And over all that, if you're running an X environment and communicating over SSH or whatever else, this can all become overly complex for the simple explanation I provide here. If terminals interest you, you can get one of those old physical ones and get an ad adapter for the RS-232 protocol or whatever protocol that terminal speaks or uses, and you can have fun with that. Terminals themselves and the architecture is a bit messy, but it is still very useful and widely used. You can't really remove terminals because of the huge baggage the existing tooling and expectation software have for them. If you really wanted to replace them, you'd have to support backward compatibility. And it would go against the point of innovation. This is all truly fascinating, the whole story and how it evolved with time and all the pieces joining each others. This was a bit of a rough explanation, but I hope it was fun to go through. And as usual, if you want more info, you can check the show notes and the related man pages that I've linked there and everything. You can even go through the POSIX standard page. It will be easier to read now. And also, as usual, if you want to contribute, this gonna, if you want to contribute, there's going to be a link in the show notes for that. And that's it. Cheers. It was Vinam for the Nixers podcast. Mm -hmm.